Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week, your audio almanac of all the fish. It's Monday, September 18th, 2023. We're on a week-by-week tour of fish across the country with guests from all walks of life. I'm Katrina Liebig with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Eurowin. Man, what can I say about this week's fishes? They're stone-biting, waterfall-climbing, amphidromous little fishes. First time going down to Puerto Rico, it's the Sicidium gobies. <laughs> nice. We're very lucky to have Gus Engman, an assistant professor at the University of Tennessee and a North Carolina State University and University of Puerto Rico alum. So welcome, Gus. We're super welcome. happy to have you. Very happy to be here and, and really excited to be talking about Sicidium gobies. Okay, so we have a lot to talk about. And I guess first, we'd like to know where exactly are we going on the map so we can get a feeling for the place where these fish live. Going to the island of Puerto Rico. It's a very important place to me. Um, I wasn't born there, but I grew up there. So Puerto Rico is the smallest of the greater Antilles. It's located kind of in the middle of the Caribbean, east-west wise. And importantly, you know, a lot of the species that occur in Puerto Rico would occur throughout the Caribbean. Growing up there as a kid, we used to always go to the Ajunque National Forest. And we would do these hikes. And a lot of times the best way to hike there is to follow a stream. That tropical rainforest can be really difficult to move through. The trails would just follow a stream or you just kind of follow a stream and climb up it to really get deeper into the forest. Okay, awesome. So we're going to be talking about a genus of really cool fishes. What are some general characteristics these fish have where you could be like, okay, I've got one in my hand. I'm pretty sure it's one of the Cycidium goby species. Just what do they look like generally? Great. To go a little broader, to get you a family of gobies, what you're going to look for is fused pelvic fins. In many families of fishes, you have two separate pelvic fins, which are the fins that are usually in the kind of lower part of the body. But in gobies, they're actually fused together and they look like one single fin. And for some of these fish, like the Cycidium gobies, they these fused pelvic fins are kind of like really powerful and they can actually suck onto the bottom or even climb over waterfalls, as Guy mentioned in the intro. Especially in these Sarajo gobies, it's going to look a little bit muscular and be kind of tight. If you turn them over, if you're comparing them to the other genus of gobies that you might find in freshwaters in the Caribbean, a wows, the Sicidium gobies have a kind of like a more muscular looking pelvic fin and you can actually see a red line. It's like vascularization. You can see kind of their blood vessels in that. Those fused pelvic fins, do they kind of form like a suction cup? Totally like a suction cup. You can stick it okay. to your finger, suck on and just stick there. I'm thinking lump suckers and they kind of have that similar suction cup capability as well. Yeah. If you look at a Sicidium goby, it kind of has a shortened face, a very round head, lips that turn downwards, and their coloration is pretty variable. And so if you cool. see a fish that's like a really beautiful blue or green kind of hanging on the bottom in a Caribbean stream, you can bet it's probably some species of Cycidium. But they can be variable. So sometimes they're more of a kind of just a slate gray color. Sometimes they have bars. Sometimes they don't. But again, you're looking for that really strong fused pelvic fin that really helps you distinguish them from other gobies in fresh waters of the Caribbean and other locations. 
we assume they're probably relatively short lived. They never get to be very big. Maybe something like six inches is like a really big one. They scrape the rocks to eat algae. They tend to like areas of streams that get a good amount of sunlight. Okay. They like kind of two different types of habitats. Sometimes they like to make their way upstream with that climbing ability to get above maybe a small waterfall that precludes any sort of these predatory fish from making it up that high. You'll see them in these mountain pools, just kind of hanging out in these big pools. And sometimes one fish will live like on top of a rock and kind of guard that mm-hmm. area. It's kind of like an algal garden for that fish. They also tend to like streams that are they're sort of wide but with big riffles big fast flowing areas because they can really handle those fast flows and again you're not going to really have a predator so they're, they're kind of the prey fish they can find places where they can avoid predators and have the ability to spend their time eating algae which they scrape off the rocks or kind of bite off the rocks cool how are they making the suction cup actually move like if you're suctioned yeah. onto something how does it actually work with flowing water yeah so they use the cup and their mouth if they want to climb something. Okay. So they've got these kind of large lips. And so they can kind of like inch up a rock using the cup, their mouth, and their pectoral fins, right? The okay. fins on the side. And it's the, the cup is the fused pelvic fins. So they can kind of suck with that cup and then stretch out their neck and use their pectoral fins to okay. kind of like inch up. Same token, if they just want to hang on the bottom, they can just suck down to the bottom with that have yep. all the fit. If you're snorkeling with them, they'll be sucked down to the bottom and they'll just kind of let themselves lift off to like drop back a few feet, you know, and then they can work their way back up. But I don't know why they do. They'll just like let themselves just kind of like lift off and float back a little and then drop back down and suck to the bottom again. Have you ever pulled one off of a rock that's stuck on a rock? No, I've, you okay. know, we've, picked, we've had them where they stick to people's fingers and we pull them off when we're working them up. But yeah, and buckets too. They'll sometimes try to climb out there. We had a bucket when we're sampling them. Okay. So is that mouth action for, for climbing and for feeding? Is that where that plumier's stone biting goby name comes from? Um, I believe that the stone biting goby is because of more of the feeding, if I'm not mistaken. Because I believe that that species, they think more scrapes rocks. There's other species that have teeth that are more adapted for nipping at filamentous algae for kind of like mm. biting it off. So there's three species of Cycidium goby in Puerto Rico, and they're very hard to distinguish morphologically. So the only way to tell these species apart is by looking at their teeth under a microscope, which means you'd have to kill the fish. So a lot of times we just use that Serajo goby to signify the genus, but within mm. the genus Cycidium, there's Cycidium busci, Cycidium plumieri, and Cycidium punctatum in Puerto Rico. It was once thought that there was a fourth species, Cycidium gilberti, but we worked with some collaborators to do some genetic work to show that really only there's, there's only three species. So I want to talk a little bit more about these habitats. When we think about Puerto Rico, a lot of times people are thinking about your marine fishes. They don't think so much about the freshwaters. What are particularly the lodic systems, the moving water systems on islands in the tropics like, and how do they compare to you know the freshwater <laughs> systems we might be familiar with on the continental U.S.? That's a great point, Guy. So in Puerto Rico, there's many rivers and streams, right? On these islands, of course, they tend to be much smaller, sort of shorter rivers and streams, right? Because Puerto Rico has a large central mountain range running through it, and it's only approximately 100 miles wide by 30 miles sort of north-south. So, you know, all rivers are going to kind of view their flow 
basically uh, off of those mountain ranges, they're going to be relatively short. They're pretty clear water streams, they tend to be. And I should also mention that Caribbean islands, they're defined often as two types of islands. It's kind of like these high islands and low islands. So mm-hmm. Puerto Rico is an island with relatively large mountains, and that allows for a good amount of precipitation to occur, you know, as kind of moisture rises off the ocean, it has to go over those mountains and then it can cool. And a lot of times you get these rainstorms that happen every afternoon there. So you get a good amount of precipitation in Puerto Rico and other high islands of the Caribbean. Whereas if you go to somewhere like the U.S. Virgin Islands, these really small islands without much mountains, there's much less water there. And so those streams are going to look a lot different. But in Puerto Rico, they're kind of smaller rivers. In the upstream reaches, they're going to be really clear and beautiful mountain streams. You're going to kind of have this enlargement of the river. Maybe downstream, you start to get into a short floodplain area that would be a little bit more turbid, have more kind of sediments in it and connect to the ocean. But you go pretty quickly from these small mountain streams right out to the ocean. That connection to the ocean really is important for these fish. I'd love to talk he, about the life history because you mentioned Yeah, that, that's what I was trying to yeah. I set you, you up yeah. and get into that. I got you. Yeah, you, you can't talk Sicilian <laughs> gobies without talking about amphidromy. So, it, there it is. Um, that's the word there of the it day. Is. Yep. What I is amphidromy? I really love amphidromous fish. So, the way that I tell people who are a little bit familiar with fish, is that it's like anadromy in reverse, right? So in salmon, which are anadromous fish, they do a lot of their growing and adult life is out in the ocean. And then they return to their natal streams to spawn and then die in young stages up the stream. So amphidromy is the reverse. They do all of their adult growth and life in freshwater and they send either eggs or larvae down to the estuary and out into the ocean. Again, they're going to be growing, living as adults in freshwater streams, never actually moving out to the ocean as adults, but they send their young life stages, which drift downstream to the ocean, and then they spend a certain amount of time in the ocean, and then they'll return from the ocean, migrating through the estuary up into those freshwater streams. Kind of similar to catadromy with eels, but the eels actually bring them into the ocean specifically versus these fish are just That's right. staying in freshwater. That's cool. Exactly. I've always heard amphidromy is moving between the salt and the freshwater for something other than spawning explicitly. Right. They don't spawn out in the ocean, so that's the difference. And so we're not exactly sure why they've maintained this life history. I mean, they are fish that evolutionarily came from sort of marine fish. So maybe they weren't able to kind of adapt to having that sort of freshwater early life stage. That might just be a better environment for the larvae. And another thing about Puerto Rico's rivers and streams is this probably important this life history is that they tend to be extremely flashy. So, you know, you get really heavy precipitation. That means that the level of the stream, the amount of water flowing through it can change very quickly. So in Puerto Rico, you get a lot of flash floods because you get these heavy rains. They can be associated with like tropical storm systems, or it can be, again, just a summer afternoon rainstorm can turn these rivers into torrents quickly. So it might be a place that's just not amenable for those young life stages. But regardless, again, they send these larvae out to the ocean and they spend time out there. They do grow out there. Something that our research has shown is that their return migrations 
might be kind of an important subsidy for the freshwater streams. That means that they're bringing marine nutrients with them back to the freshwaters that they come back as post larvae, which is the stage after being the larval stage in the ocean. Important thing about amphidromy is that this life history is very common in tropical islands throughout the world. So you'll find amphidromous gobies from everywhere from Puerto Rico to Hawaii. In fact, they're pretty similar taxonomically there. And so a lot of what we learn about these fishes in Puerto Rico will apply to tropical islands all throughout the world from Puerto Rico to Hawaii, Southeast Asian islands. So these fish are really important components of those fish assemblages throughout the world. Steep streams, I don't know exactly what the nutrient loads are in them, but you, you talked about how amphidromy is common all over the world. I was wondering if you can connect the nutrients in these streams, their high flows, their flashiness, to the necessity for th this kind of life history trait. I think that is what people think is possibly why uh, this life history trait occurs, that difference in sort of nutrient or food availability. Puerto Rico streams tend to be relatively low nutrient and you're really not going to find much zooplankton or any plankton really living in them, again, because of that flashiness. They're just kind of clear streams. And so larval fish tend to eat things like zooplankton. And so we would imagine that that might be related to that food source not being there. There are some exceptions. There's some flexibility in this life history. And it has been shown that for some amphidromous fishes, there's individuals that will migrate all the way to the ocean and there's individuals that don't. So it's not absolutely necessary for that to happen. That's a good theory about it is that's related to that relative amount of food or nutrients in, in the ocean versus these kind of clear streams. I'm trying to think back to like freshman year ichthyology and I think I remember something about there being a paired, the in-migration of the seti, the post-larval gobies, with the out-migration of eels. Is that something, or am I losing my mind? Is that right? Paired? I'm, You're losing something your like, mind. Okay, maybe it's in my... I'm I thought like kidding. the eels out-migrated, and okay, the last, like, before they're going down to the Sargasses Sea to spawn, their, their last meal is sort of on this big source of nutrients in migrating, but maybe I'm not correct on that. We have definitely shown that eels eat the post-larval and it's actually a pretty important food source for them. I don't know that we know that that timing is synchronized. However, we do know that the timing of those return migrations is synchronous for these fish. They time the return migrations with the lunar phase, especially the cystidium gobies. And so they'll only be primarily migrating over sort of three nights or so of the lunar cycle in each month. Um, and so they're these mass migrations. They're tiny postlar, but there's so many that people actually fish for them as a spoon source. So if we're talking about eels and these fish, I know there's an elver fishery for eels. So, mm -hmm. and this is a very small fish we're talking about, and we don't normally think about a fishery, but what is the post larval fishery like and kind of, yeah, yeah, just what's it like? So it's an artisanal, like a small scale fishery. And these post-larval fisheries occur throughout the world as well. But in Puerto Rico and the Caribbean, they only do this fishery during about two or three nights of what's called the Luna Menguante, so it's the last quarter moon phase. So it's when you've got a half moon, but you're moving toward that new moon, the period of time where there's no visible moon. And what goes on in these fisheries, they use mosquito netting. So the kind of nets that you would hang over your bed to keep mosquitoes from biting you 
you know, it's really fine mesh. And so uh, a couple of people will pull that net like a seine. They'll just kind of drag it through the water right at the mouth of the river, right at the location where the river's estuary meets the kind of sandy beach habitat of the oceans. So you see like waves breaking, but there's kind of a river flowing out there. This is a long-standing tradition. And in fact, the name for these post larvae at least has its origins in indigenous name. Because if you look at the names across the Caribbean, in Puerto Rico, they're called Seti. In mm-hmm. Cuba, they're called Teti. In Martinique, it's like Tree Tree. And so because of that really similar name, we imagine that the connection was from indigenous people who probably fished for them as well. In fact, there's some early texts saying that indigenous people did fish for post larvae. And so what do these post larvae actually look like and how are people then preparing and consuming them? Yeah, that's a great question. So when they are coming in from the ocean, they're clear. So almost Mm -hmm. entirely clear. The only bone that's ossified in their body that's hard in their body is their otolis, which is just really tiny. They're the bones in their ears. That's the only one you can really actually find is a bone. And so when you see an individual one, it mostly looks clear, but it's so clear that you can actually see its heart and its gills through its body. And so when these mass migrations happen, sometimes the entire river will look red. Like if you shine a spotlight at, on it at night, you can kind of see Whoa. this red plume moving up. And that's just, there's so many of these, there's just their hearts and their, oh my gosh. you actually see their blood. Yeah. <laughs> wow. wow. Yeah. That's amazing. And how but big are they? They're about an inch long. Wow. gobies is the smallest of the group of amphibious fishes, but their post larvae are the largest. So <laughs> things like a big mouth sleeper will do this too, and it'll also come back looking clear, but it's a little bit smaller maybe less than 20 millimeters. And so I've seen people with just like buckets of these. That must be, you know, if lots of people are doing this, hundreds of thousands, I don't know, maybe millions of individuals being harvested. We estimated at one point that something like a metric ton of these fish might migrate through a river mouth over like a three-day period. Wow. So those post larval migrations are pretty big. Then what do people do? You got a bucket of these really little fish. What's next? That's a great question. So yeah, so they'll go out, they'll spend all night out there fishing. And again, they're going to be kind of filled out these buckets and so important. And then they're eating whole. So they'll be very careful to try and clean out all the sand. Often try to separate out the shrimp because there's post-larval shrimp. Mm -hmm. Again, in Puerto Rico, all the native freshwater shrimp are also amphidromous and they're often migrating at the same time what they'll do is they'll dig these big pits in the sand and they'll kind of let the shrimp jump out of their nets and they try to separate everything else once they get it separated and clean they basically sell it directly to restaurants and so in Puerto Rico the most common way to eat seti the post larval gobi, is in what's called an empanada but it's not mm. a, the typical description of a panada that you see throughout like Latin America. It's closer to like a tamale. It's made with mashed plantains instead of like cornmeal. So it's kind of this mashed plantain outer part. Then they saute up these little serrajo gobi hole and that gets wrapped in a banana leaf. And then it's like cooked on a grill or sometimes like on an open like fired grill. But there are other restaurants in Portugal that'll put it on pizza and there's a lot of other ways to do it, like to fry it, just put them all in a batter, but they're always eating whole. Do they turn um, but, white when they get cooked? 
Yeah, they kind of turn white. They have a very mild flavor. The thing that I would equate it most to would be like a very mild shrimp flavor. Huh. Um, you think they'd taste fishy, but you're eating this whole fish and very, very mild. So we're talking about lots and lots of little fish. Is there any idea what proportion of the populations is being harvested? It sounds like a lot of little fish. Is this affecting the populations? I know it sounds like yeah. a longstanding tradition, so just kind of curious. We did do some research on that. And so we estimated one run, one of these migration periods, and we asked all the fishermen in one river, the Rio Grande Arecibo, which is kind of the most important river in Puerto Rico for the Seti fishery to let us quantify their catch, to, to measure their catch. And so we estimated they were probably only taking maybe six or seven percent of that run out. Okay. Um, so relatively low exploitation rate. I mean, it's still it's always a concern when, when early life history fish are being harvested, but it seems like potentially they might not be having such a big impact. And again, this is a very small scale fishery. It's only occurring on certain rivers in Puerto Rico. It tends to be the ones that are in the northwest corner of the island that are the larger rivers. They also are the ones that get the larger runs of Sarajevo Gobi, the larger sort of migrations. And we think that's related to the amount of water coming out of them. But again, our estimates were between around 6 and 7% of the total run size. Awesome. Has anyone done any genetic work to try and figure out if people are catching the post larvae of all three gobies or if they have different spawning times so that people are only catching the ones that are the Sarajo or anything like that? No, we've never done that to try to separate out individuals at those post larval stages because it's possible that one species can migrate one month and one can migrate another. We know that they overlap in locations within rivers. So for example, the Rio Grande Arecibo would have all three species within it, which is where, again, one location where the fishery occurs, but nobody's done the work to see if there's any sort of distinction. I am pretty sure that they catch all three species. I don't know that if there's certain different months that once migrate on or others, but nobody's looked at that. Nobody's identified them to species. We always keep it at the genus level. Do they have any specialized spawning habitat or is it just wherever? You know, there's been some like early naturalist sort of life history observations where they think that they lay eggs on the underside of rocks. But I don't think there's been any recent research on exactly where they spawn or even how they spawn. And I wouldn't want to say that we knew because I've never noticed any eggs on the other side of rocks or anything like that. A little gap there. Yeah, there's a gap there. There's a lot to be learned about amphidromous fish spawning for sure. I'm guessing that the answer is we still don't know, but I'm curious if you have any insights into what kind of niche partitioning might be going on between these species, considering that they're so similar, but you're finding like, say, all three species in a single river. One theory for the niche partitioning is the types of algae that they would eat. Hmm. So what does distinguish them is their teeth, right? Both in the number of rows of teeth that they have and whether they're unicuspid or tricuspid. Hmm. And so, you know, tricuspid would be kind of like these three little points, right? Versus unicuspid is kind of like our, you know, incisors, our front teeth. And so... I think that the thinking is some of those teeth are more adapted for scraping biofilms, just like, you know, that kind of slimy algae that's just mm-hmm. on a rock yeah, versus yeah. other teeth are more adapted for cutting into filamentous algae, that kind of like long stringy algae. 
we're just cutting into it, biting off pieces of it. That's so cool. What is the fish community like? I mean, are there other predatory fish? Just kind of overall picture of what these communities are like in the streams in Puerto Rico. For freshwater streams in Puerto Rico, we say that there's only nine native kind of like fully freshwater species, including those three species of Sarapagobi. But there is kind of all these different trophic levels. So again, Sarapagobi, they're kind of on the bottom. They're eating the primary producers of the algae. They're the prey for predators. And the predatory fish, again, both in Puerto Rico and throughout the tropics, come from the family Eleotridae. So those are the sleepers. So in Puerto Rico, we've got big mouth sleeper, small-scaled spidey cheek sleeper, and fat sleeper. And the big mouth sleeper is the real top dog. That has a very large mouth, these really kind of small but pointy teeth. They'll eat things that are like almost the size of their own body. And oh so, my gosh. yeah, very, very cool fish. That's kind of the top dog predator. Small-scaled spidey cheek sleeper likes things like snails. And then there's another goby, the river goby, a wowus banana, which is like one of the best Latin names ever. <laughs> and that's also kind of lower trophic level. It'll bite into soft sediments like sand and then kind oh. of filter it through its gill rakers. So I think it's probably picking up both invertebrates and maybe some sort of algae that might live in the sand or detritus. So those are the Eleotrids and the gobies. And then we have a freshwater mullet, the mountain mullet, which is kind of an intermediate sort of trophic level fish. It will eat just kind of things drifting down through the river, including if you throw pieces of mango in the water, they'll eat mango. If you if oh, they wow. see an insect, they'll eat an insect. They swim in the water column. So I should mention all the eleotrids and the gobies, they're going to be benthic fish so they're on the bottom. The mountain mullet, they swim in the water column. They tend to kind of school up almost like a tropical trout, but it's not related but fishing wise if you're into fishing you can catch one on a fly so those are all the amphidromous species and then we've got the catadromous american eel another predator but more of a nocturnal predator doesn't have as big of a mouth as a big mouth sleeper so yeah sounds like we need two more episodes with the mountain mullet and the the sleepers that's super cool yeah i would love to talk about about those fish so yeah going further into the general stream community we've got shrimp as well they got the fan hands <laughs> yeah guys doing some motions with his hands right now <laughs> yeah <laughs> jazz hands a td the uh the that's a family of shrimps they filter <laughs> the water with these kind of like fan it's like little palm palms they got. yeah there's those filter feeding shrimp there's cipicaris they'll kind of pick at things if you go up to a mountain stream in Puerto Rico and you put your feet in the water and all of a sudden like you see these things crawling on it, you feel something picking at you, it's as if shrimp, a carrot nose shrimp. And then yeah. there are some, there's some predatory shrimp. So genus Macrobrachium, they get really big. I mean like foot and a half long, what? like little river lobsters that oh uh, will be up in those, those streams and they're the predators of the shrimp Dang. assemblage. Are there so, any non-native fishes that have been introduced? Oh, yeah. We've talked about this amphidromous life history and the catadromous life history. So what happens if you put a big dam in place? You lose those fish, right? Mm. So the management decision back in the 30s and before was, well, if we're going to lose these fish in these upstream reservoirs, let's put some non-native sport fish in there. So intentionally, mm. things like largemouth bass, Peacock bass from South America were introduced intentionally. We've also got common species of sunfish like bluegill, 
red-ear sunfish introduced there long ago, some oh. catfish as well. So those were kind of like introduced to Tennessee for sport fishing purposes. They do a good job of kind of staying in the reservoirs and not expanding into the rivers. But then we've had some highly invasive species of fish that come from either the aquarium trade or potentially things like farm ponds. So we've got all kinds of species of tilapia. Mm-hmm. One that I've been studying and, and very concerned about are our red devil cichlids. So cichlids in the genus Amphilophus, they're native to Central America, are very aggressive and they are spreading throughout the island really rapidly. Oh man. We've also got armored suckerbell catfish, so from the family Lower Korea Day. So those are commonly kind of invasive in other places and they're in Puerto Rico and get pretty abundant there as well. There's also concerns about recently discovered, but hopefully an isolated population of African walking catfish or sharp tooth catfish. We actually have many more introduced species than native species in Puerto Rico. When did you uh, move down to Puerto Rico first? Well, my father moved there when I was 12 years old. So I kind of grew up there from a pretty young age. I was think 14 when I kind of started living there full-time went to high school there and then went to the University of Miami for my undergraduate degree and then back to the University of Puerto Rico for my master's and that's when I started doing some research and streams there. Can you tell us the story like when you first kind of fell in love or became fascinated by (laughs) the freshwater streams of Puerto Rico? Yeah I've always been a fish but I was kind of into the marine environment then I was into scuba diving and stuff and for whatever reason, I never snorkeled or tried to fish in there as, you know, as a young kid. Again, I used to love to go to the streams. We'd go swimming. we jump off waterfalls and all that type of stuff, but I didn't pay attention to them as much. Then when I moved back to Puerto Rico, I met my master's advisor, Alonzo Ramirez, and I started just reading about what he was doing. He was actually studying shrimp and aquatic insects in the rivers. He kind of talked about how important these shrimp were for the ecosystem processes in the river, how they like break down the leaves, what they do for the stream. So I got kind of interested in that. But then I just got a job actually as a technician working for a graduate student and they were electrofishing. They were sampling the stream fishes. Mm-hmm. That was from Tom Quack's lab. We actually caught a lot of and all that. He's a big mouth sleeper and really realized what was in those streams. I really wanted to do research on them. And then additionally, there's some plans to channelize my home river, the the Rio Piedras, and that was really going to destroy that habitat. So I kind of tailored my master's degree to look at how those channelizations would affect the fish assemblage. And what was really interesting that we found was that the Rio Piedras, which is the most urbanized river in Puerto Rico, goes right through the center of San Juan, the biggest city. At that time, it was mostly native fish, even though it was channelized. Something about the fact that they could just handle all that urbanization and do well really interested me. But when it's channelized, when the physical habitat is really altered, you do lose the native fish. And then you get like guppies and some tilapia maybe in there. But you lose a lot of that diversity. So just kind of the conservation standpoint was really important for me as well. And not a lot of people were doing research on them. I saw they're fascinating. I love streams. And so they were kind of the perfect fish for me to work on. Do you know of any like calls to action in terms of research or invasive fish or land use, or water use, best practices that folks can kind of focus on to help keep this really cool assemblage of native fish and shrimps? There are continued plans to channelize the Rio Piedras. 
the intended purpose would be flood control. A lot of San Juan is built on what was historically water or a wetland. There's just a lot of Puerto Rico's coast is like that, what was historically a wetland. So those areas tend to flood, right? And so what they're trying to do is just kind of funnel all of the water out as quickly as possible. Of course, gotcha. people who know things about channelizations know that's all fine and well, but sometimes when you have sort of floods that go beyond what you're planning for, it can make it more catastrophic because you're still funneling yeah. more and more water. <laughs> but yeah. And I believe the group is called Amigos del Rio Piedras, the like friends of the Rio Piedras. Mm -hmm. So that's like kind of just a community group who are people who live by the river, but they really don't want to see it turn into like a concrete channel. There is a lot of concern in terms of the effects of dams as well as climate change for these fish. Uh, and then there's a San Juan Bay estuary program for these fish. It's not just about the freshwater, but that estuarine habitat is really important. Well, the, there's a Puerto Rico chapter of the American Fisheries Society. So that's somewhere people can kind of look for more information or anything like that. Okay. It just sounds like, I mean, really, really neat community of fish. So just kind of building that appreciation for them. Yeah. You've done a really good job explaining it all. Yeah. Okay. Why should people care about these Sicidium gobies? They're important to the culture of Puerto Rico as a historical and artisanal food source. They're beautiful. If you get up in, say, Ojunque National Forest, put on a snorkel and mask, You'll probably find them in some of those streams and rivers there. And they're really important for the ecosystem. They were there well before us, and they're an important link in that food chain for all other fish. So if you care about sport fish, things like big mouth sleeper, they're a really important food source. I should also say they're an important food source for some estuarine sport mm -hmm. fish, things like snook and tarpon that are super valuable economically. Mm -hmm. We found that when those mass migrations are occurring, they're chowing down on them as well. Awesome. Thank you. Okay. Well, thank you so much. This was amazing. I learned a lot. It sounds really neat. Really neat yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. It. Okay. Well, get out there and enjoy and appreciate the Sicidium gobies. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebeck, and my co host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for the series is Citizen Race Car. Produced and story edited by Tasha A.F. Lemley. Production management by Gabriella Montequin. Post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Regional Office of External Affairs. We honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individual tribes, states, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish. Amphidromous fishes. That's, that's like a vocal exercise. <laughs> amphidromous fishes. Fishing for amphidromous fishes. <laughs>